Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 8th, 2017. This is episode 2127 of the Survival Podcast. That's right, it's episode 2127 of TSP. And you know what day it is. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, I'm not going to belt it out. We got the granddaughter asleep. And did I say 2127? That would be incorrect. It is 2128. I have officially fixed my mistake. I did it on the fly. Anyway, uh, since it is Friday, 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 I'll tell you what. We've got that expert counsel show Q&A for you. I've got a great lineup today. We're going to be hearing from, what, seven expert council members and me. Uh, we're going to hear from Brandon Todd on cryptocurrencies dealing with what's called blockchain bloat. We're going to talk about choosing a walk-in freezer for a farm operation with Darby Simpson. Taking on debt to deal with health costs from John Pugliano when, I mean, critical, like, life-is-at-stake type situation. Uh, dealing with problems when eating red meat from Gary Collins. Dealing with Leos who are asking to search your vehicle from Dan Oman. Integrating solar heating in a northern climate with existing heating uh, apparatus from Stephen Harris. And building rabbit cages with Nick Ferguson. And I am going to talk about honing your deer butchering skills when, well, you only have once a year maybe to do a deer and butcher a deer. All of that more in just a bit. Before we get into it, let's, let's take a look at the year that was in history. We are in the same year we were yesterday, in the year 79 AD. Uh, South Paul Ben is back at it and has completed his segment for the year 79. Mount Vesuvius blows its top. This year, the infamous eruption of Vesuvius, best known for its destruction and preservation of Pompeii, occurs after years of threatening to do so. While it's best known for destroying the city of Pompeii, there were three other settlements that were destroyed as well. These settlements were Herculum, Oplanus, and Stabae. Total population of these four settlements between 16 and 20,000. The destruction killed thousands of people with the current total of bodies and bones adding to roughly 1,500 discovered so far, with predictions of thousands more being discovered as excavations continue. Pliny the Younger wrote about the events of the eruption with two of his letters to the historian Tactius, being the only surviving eyewitness accounts of it. He talks about his uncle, Pliny the Elder, returning to part to, as part of a rescue fleet, which ultimately cost him his life. This time in Italian history is rife with seismic activity, especially in the region of Campania, where Vesuvius was located. Modern estimates of the energy of the eruption being about 100,000 times the thermal energy of the nuclear bomb dropped in Japan. My take by Southpaw Ben. One interesting aspect of Vesuvius' eruption is the fact that it, in destroying the four Campania settlements, It actually preserved them. Pompeii was rediscovered in 1599 during the digging of an underground channel to, to, uh, to dive a river. And as a result, an architect was called in who looked at a bit of what was found before covering them, either to preserve the paintings on them or for future posterity. As for censorship, as many parts of the paintings contain explicit sexual content, a lot of knowledge and confirmation of our understanding of Roman life comes from Pompeii, as it is what was essentially frozen in time with many details that would have been eroded or been lost in a per and less perfectly pre preserved area. 
captured for us today, such as exactly what food was available, as well as some of the amazing engineering feats of the time, such as geothermal heat used for heating baths and houses and slit stilt houses on uh, the port with a system of channels which have been compared to Venice by many. It is interesting. and You know what it makes me wonder? Is there another Pompeii? No, I don't mean parallel universes, Star Trek fans. I mean, is there one of these things yet to be discovered? We, we think we know so much. We think what is, is there to be discovered has been discovered, or if there is anything else to be discovered, it is the, you know, something, you know, almost sci-fi, like the, the lost city of Atlantis or something like that. But could there be somewhere a yet unknown great discovery on the level of a perfectly preserved Pompeii? You might think it's not possible, but it's an awful big world. And we just don't know what we don't know. Just something to think about and kind of give you some perspective in your life. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show, you like the work I do, you like the fact that I put together this incredible expert council to answer your questions, um, you know, you can help us out. And you can help us out and help yourself out at the same time. It's called Member Support Brigade. All that you do, you go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the Members tab. Once you do that, you'll see how you can sign up there. You'll see all the great discounts you get. And sign up. It comes out to about 20 cents an episode, guys. 20 cents an episode. And, and I would bet you that if you're a long-term listener of this show, that you've gotten more than $50 a year value out of the show. So look at it that way as deciding, hey, I think this is worth supporting. And then take those discounts and get your money back in spades. That's the way I set it up. So it's a no-lose proposition. So consider joining the Member Support Brigade today and help support the show that you listen to five days a week, Monday through Friday, with me, Jack Spierko. All right, guys. With that, let's go ahead and get into your first call, uh, or actually your first question for the expert council. This is a question for Brandon Todd on Blockchain Bloat. Now, uh, I do have to make an announcement on Brandon's behalf as I play this for you. This will be the last time you'll hear from Brandon on the council. I heard from him by email today. He said it's with regret that he could no longer do the expert council uh, due to time commitments and things going on in his life. He just doesn't have time uh, to do it at this point. And I think it's a bigger commitment than people realize to be part of our council. It's why, we, you know, really these guys are great guys, and when they have business or something, we should support them. Um, so he can't do it anymore. I've extended a invitation to Benjamin Fitz of Crypto Gulch to take this position on the council. He has tentatively accepted. I'm going to get him some questions out of Brandon's backlog and make sure he understands what he's in for before we officially make him a member. I'd love to have him, but I know he is really, really, really busy right now getting Crypto Gulch up to the point where he can start taking more customers because he's out of room where he's at. And uh, so we're going to... We're going to see if it's going to work for him or not. And if not, I'll find someone else. I'm getting to the point where I think I can handle most of these myself. But I like having the counsel because you get other opinions. And that's really, really important with something that's complicated. Anyway, with that, Brandon, uh, tell us about blockchain bloat and how it can be dealt with. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer another question for the expert panel. This question is from Josh in Virginia where he asks... My understanding of blockchain is that every iteration of the blockchain contains data about all the previous transactions resulting in longer and longer data files each quote-unquote hash time. 
Won't that blockchain file inevitably grow to be a bloated monster the more people uh, and more transactions are done? It would seem that this would prevent crypto from being a useful currency because the more it's used, the slower and bulkier it gets. Even now, people have to pay up bigger fees to get uh, Bitcoin to process a transaction, right? I would think blockchains are more suited to property titles, real estate transaction contracts, etc. because of this. Thanks, Josh from Virginia. All right, well, this is a great question. Um, and this is one that bothered me for a long time. So let's see if I can address this properly for you. So you are correct that blockchains will grow over time. You're also correct that if not properly scaled, a blockchain's resources will become scarce, pushing up transaction costs and times to be included in a block. But if it has enough room, uh, it won't get any slower or have higher fees. I'm so glad that you asked this larger question because it's something that, like I said, bothered me about cryptocurrencies for a long time. I can tell that you understand the bigger picture and that you are paying attention. I would also argue that you are not alone. Many people are worried about this precious space and how we implement scaling going forward. This is exactly why we are seeing forks to the BTC or Bitcoin main chain, which are causing coin splits as well this year. Okay, so let's pick a, a cryptocurrency because they all are different in how they organize this storage and, and uh, rate of transaction times. I will choose Bitcoin for this example. Okay, so Bitcoin has 10-minute block times, and what this means is that on average, uh, BTC logs another chunk of transaction data to its ledger or blockchain every 10 minutes. What this really equates to is around three transactions per second. Now, if we want BTC or Bitcoin to scale to a true global currency to compete with the big dogs, we're going to have to do as well as, well, Visa. And Visa does, on average, uh, of about 1,700 transactions per second. So in comparison, BTC is three transactions per second, and Visa is 1,700 transactions per second. So what would we have to do to scale? Well, this is the exact debate that caused the Bitcoin cash fork back in August. You see, legacy Bitcoin or original Bitcoin has decided that this that its roadmap is to scale off-chain in the form of something called the Lightning Network, which is just a one-to-one peg-to-payment channel network that lives off the blockchain, but is tied to the blockchain with one transaction every so often when someone finally closes out a payment channel. This is not what I'm talking. This is not what I'm about to explain. I will, for the sake of this demonstration, explain scaling on chain, like what Bitcoin Cash is trying to do, and thus why they had to fork in August. So let's dig in. Right now, Bitcoin Cash or BCH has eight megabyte block cap, which is eight times that of original Bitcoin or BTC. Let's do some math. There is still one block every 10 minutes with Bitcoin Cash, which equates to 144 blocks a day on average, which comes out to about 1.152 gigs per day. Of course, we don't have anywhere close to full blocks yet with, with Bitcoin Cash, but let's say that blocks are full. This would equate to about 240 gigs a year or about one, or about 8 terabytes in 20 years to store all this transaction data if you run a full node. That's not terrible for a 20-year investment, and I would argue that although, yes, we would have less people running nodes, we would still have plenty of people willing to dedicate that space. Especially if you're, if you factor in the fact that it must, if it survived, you know, that long to store it, which means that the prices probably went up substantially, giving these people the ability to take some of that profit and secure their own financial security with, with the proper hardware to run their own nodes. Okay, so now let's get realistic. If we want to be Visa, we are going to need around 1,700 transactions a second, right? To achieve this, 
on-chain, we will need blocks of around 556 megabytes. So doing the math again, we get around 80 gigs a day, 29 terabytes a year, or 584 terabytes to store a Visa-sized blockchain for 20 years. Okay, so now this changes things, doesn't it? Now, if, if this were true today, much fewer people would run a full node and keep track of the ledger, and this and this is what people on the BTC side of things debate, uh, you know, are scared of because this would lead to centralization of who holds the ledger and would take away the magic and power of Bitcoin. So is Bitcoin Cash doomed to a centralized 51% takeover attack because of this? Maybe. But let's consider history and some other things that are playing into the future. So consider the prospect of spending nearly $2,000 to buy a 4-gig SCSI drive back in 1993. And now you get the same on a USB stick with the same capacity for around $4. That's 500 times cheaper in about 20 years. Now, obviously, I cannot predict that this will be true for the next 20 years, but I can say that we are not done uh, moving in this direction. This price decrease happened largely because of a thing called Moore's Law, which states that a number of transactions in a dense integrated circuit doubles approximately every two years. This makes things smaller and cheaper over time, as we have seen with computer hardware of the last 40-plus years. So if we took that same growth and applied it to the next 20 years, we would have a cost of, of storing 584 terabytes of around $58.40. Now think, of that, think about that for a minute. If the cost of computer storage stays on pace with the, next, uh, with the last 20 years, in the next 20 years, everyone could store a full copy of the Bitcoin ledger at Visa transaction levels with one, well, with about half gig blocks for around $60. Now, of course, this assumes a few things that will happen gradually over time at different rates that calculated, uh, but you get the picture. So we will have to see. Maybe the blockchain bloat picture is not as bleak after all. And of course, this doesn't take into factor uh, the CPU constraints that we'll need to pair in line, you know, parallel with this this storage space too. So to be able to query all of these transactions in these much bigger blocks, um, we will need a greater greater power on the nodes as well. Um, so I mean, this you know Moore's law is going to affect that largely around the same way. So we'll leave that for a whole nother debate. So now to comment on your question of blockchains being better suited for title and mortgage storing. I would argue that it is just one of the many things that we'll see the blockchain being good at, so to speak. And maybe you're already aware of this project, but if not, Factum is doing just that. Factum has many blockchains that actually live off-chain and use what they call anchors to tie into the Bitcoin blockchain for immutability and security. You see, you don't have to store all of that data in the BTC blockchain. You just have to have a way of tying into it. So one could hack the servers of, Factum, of Factum's metadata blockchains and change it, but they would have invalidated that information because its truth is dependent on a hash in the BTC blockchain called an anchor. So if you haven't already, check out Factum if you're interested in using blockchains for mortgage and title records. All right, thank you for the down-the-rabbit-hole question, Josh, uh, and I hope I gave you some things to think about on this topic. Uh, once again, I would like to mention that if you want to see the supporting information I use to give these responses, go over to CryptoSkim.com, click on TSB Questions, scroll down, find the episode number in the description of this response. Also, also consider signing up for my newsletter to keep abreast of the big events going on in the cryptocurrency space. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim signing off. 
Up next, I have a question for Darby Simpson on making a decision on moving to a walk-in freezer for someone running a farm. Darby, take it away. Hello again, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Calling in this week to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Jacob, and he is looking for some advice on a walk-in freezer. His farm's getting to the point uh, where he thinks it's time to upgrade and that it makes sense, and he's, he's currently using some uh, uh, upright freezers uh, for them to be exact. And he's kind of been looking into walk-in freezers and is curious about what route we took with our farm and what my advice is. Uh, one thing that Jacob has found are a lot of disassembled freezers uh, that are just sitting on pallets, uh, but he's not sure if those are going to be worth the hassle or risk of assembling. Um, so he's just kind of curious to know what my thoughts are on all this. And, and Jacob, I'll, I tell you what, like most farmers and like yourself, what we started with was one upright freezer and one chest freezer in our barn. Uh, and within a few years, we had uh, gotten that up to 11 uh, upright freezers and chest freezers in our barn uh, with a rat's nest of extension cords running everywhere. And uh, we, too, got to the point where we knew we needed to make a change. We knew we needed to upgrade. Uh, and a walk-in freezer was a slam-duck resolution to what we were currently doing. And we really got fortunate uh, with the solution that we are using here on our place. Um, it, located about 50 miles from my farm, uh, there was another farmer uh, who I knew through a mutual acquaintance um, that was selling a walk-in freezer. He had been in the retail meat business and was getting out and was getting rid of some equipment off of his farm, the freezer being one of those items. And what he had was an 8-foot by 8-foot by 16-foot um, reefer unit, which is basically a freezer off of a mobile delivery truck. And uh, he had gotten it from someone else and had you know fixed it up and been using it. And like I said, just didn't want it anymore. Uh, so we were we were happy to buy it. We we got what we thought was a pretty smoking deal on it. Um, he had roughly two thousand dollars in that thing, and that's what we paid him for it. And uh, fortunately for us, that included delivery. He had access to a uh, large flatbed truck that had a hydraulic dump bed on it, and he loaded that thing up, brought it down here, and and kind of offloaded it into the front of my barn and. Um, we then, like the Egyptians, used some round, round fence posts and a loader on our large tractor and just got that thing moved into position, and it has been a huge blessing. It's one of those things that I don't know how I ever got along without it. Um, I mean, I know how I got along without it, but my gosh, I never want to go back there. It is such a huge time saver. Um, my dad, fortunately, who is an electrician and does refrigeration, was able to uh, do the work that we needed uh, to make that operate in our barn uh, safely and efficiently. Uh, but it sure is nice just having that one large freezer instead of all those small freezers. Um, you know, a couple big advantages. It freezes stuff a whole lot faster. So when we load that thing up with fresh chicken, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more powerful. It freezes it quicker. It's got nice stainless steel racks in it, uh, you know, that are slotted so the airflow can move and freeze things quickly. Uh, it's also really nice to be able to preload all of our coolers, uh, on a, on a Friday night, particularly in the summer, because we do two farmer's markets on Saturday mornings. Uh, I can, you know, go out on Friday afternoon, get everything packed up and ready to go. And then on Saturday morning, we just have to walk out there 
toss those little coolers into the trucks and, and take off. I don't have to get up extra early and allow, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour to pack coolers on Saturday morning, which is nice because Saturday starts early enough the way it is. Uh, so that's, you know, that's been a huge blessing for us. Um, you know, as far as what you're looking at, do I think that, uh, you know, purchasing a disassembled freezer could be worthwhile? Yeah, I, I really do. I, I think the key here uh, is to be opportunistic. Uh, to be patient and just look for the right deal and be willing to look out, you know, quite a ways from your farm to find the right deal. Uh, you know, that's my mindset. If I'm buying a piece of equipment that's a one-time purchase, I'm going to have it for a long time. Or if I'm buying it like my truck, you know, I had to drive over 300 miles to get my truck and I patiently looked for four months. That's the exact same tact I would tell you to take because you want to get a, a really good deal, you know, be opportunistic I uh, get the deal that works best for you, and that's that's worth taking a day to go somewhere and pick it up and, and get it and haul it home, particularly if it's a freezer that's on pallets. Um, you know, I, I've heard stories of those being, like, really cheap or even free uh, in, in instances where restaurants or stores have, have gone out of business. If you're willing to go disassemble it and take it apart, uh, I think that's worthwhile. Obviously, you can do some of this work yourself uh, in terms of reassembly. If you can pour a, you know, a good concrete pad, an insulated concrete pad, and you know, put a floor drain in it, and then get the panels, you know, put back together. Uh, you know, maybe have a contractor, you know, come out to, to wire the thing up and do all the refrigeration work for you. Uh, I think it could be worthwhile. But again, I just think you got to be opportunistic and take your time and find the right deal. Uh, you know, you might look for one of these units like we found. If you can get one that's already self-contained, uh, then there's really no installation uh, to deal with per se. You know, the negative is that it's in one great big heavy piece, so you probably have to contract someone out to, to bring it to you. But if you can safely get it set into place, you make sure it's relatively level. Uh, then you have somebody, you know, Come out, give it a tune-up, make sure it's, uh, you know, charged uh, properly with refrigerant, uh, do any electrical work that needs done, and turn the on thing on, you're ready to go. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, Jacob, and I, I would just tell you to take your time and uh, find what works for you. But, yeah, I think this is a good route to look, uh, whether it be disassembled already, something you have to disassemble, or a reefer unit like we got. Um, I would encourage you to get a walk-in freezer if you're at that point. I think it makes all kinds of sense. So thanks for sending in the question, Jacob. Hopefully you find this helpful. Uh, for anyone else that would like to learn more about me, you can check out my website at DarbySimpson.com, or you can check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast that I do each and every week with my good friend Diego Footer. You can find that on iTunes. Just look up Grass-Fed Life uh, or on your Android device, or you can check it out at the website PermacultureVoices.com. We do have a lot of exciting things coming in early 2018, so uh, please stay tuned for more information coming on that. We've got some, some things coming your way that are really going to be uh, really helpful for a lot of you out there that are into raising quality livestock on pasture. As always, thanks for the questions. Please keep them coming. Everyone, have a great weekend and take care. Okay, now I have a question for John Pugliano. This is a complicated situation and John really does his best here to try to help somebody in a situation no one wants to be in and this is a this is a tough situation on dealing with the concept that you have a medical issue that you can't afford to fund but somebody's life is at stake and do you take debt in that instance 
if you have to, I think you'll hear that you do. But here's some ways to try to figure out how to do the best you can in a tough situation for a guy that's pretty good with money. Hello, TSP listeners. Today our financial question comes from Matt. And unfortunately, Matt is going through what many people are experiencing with the broken health care system and health insurance system that we have in our country. And here's Matt's question. Is it ever okay to take out a loan to pay for health care or medical expenses? The reason Matt is asking this question is that he knows that it's not a good idea to go into debt. However, because of some lapses in health insurance coverage, His wife, who is a cancer patient survivor, now is listed as having a pre-existing condition, and so it's really jacked up the price of his health insurance, and he's most likely going to have to go into debt to be able to pay for the health insurance premiums and the out-of-pocket expenses to meet the deductible. Now, Matt's situation isn't unusual. I think if you look at the underlying reason as to why people file bankruptcy, you'll see that one of the number one or two reasons is because of medical expenses. So let's see if we can help Matt out here. First of all, in terms of going into debt, I'm not a Dave Ramsey where I believe that all debt is bad. I think that debt, like any tool, can be beneficial if it's used properly. And again, like any tool, if used improperly, it can ruin you or destroy your life. And so I believe an appropriate use of debt is to finance the purchase of an appreciating asset. So if you're purchasing real estate like your home or maybe like rental property and there's a high likelihood that the value of that property is going to be worth more in the future than it is today, then that's probably an appropriate use of debt. If you're going to be using debt to finance the expansion of your growing business and you have a successful business model, well then again, I think that that would be an appreciating asset and that's an appropriate use of debt. Now in Matt's case, we're talking about the health of his wife. And I'm sure that Matt loves his spouse just like I love mine. And I can assure you that my wife is an appreciating asset. And I would spend what I had to or go into whatever debt I had to go to make sure that she was healthy and that her life was prolonged. And I know Matt feels the same way about his wife. So would I recommend going into debt to pay for health care, to pay for health insurance? Well, if that's your only option, yeah, I would because I would choose life. Now, Matt, I'm also trying to think through some things here that might be able to help out your situation. And Matt has done the right thing. He's given me some, some detailed breakdown of what different health care options are going to cost him. And that's a really smart thing to do. Whenever you're in a financial situation, always take out a pencil and paper, or even better yet, take out an Excel spreadsheet and start to run the numbers. Now, the one thing, Matt, that I see that might be applicable to you, and I have to preface this by saying that what I'm going to mention here, I don't know if it's entirely legal because there's so many convoluted rules and regulations that apply to health insurance and you know, who you can buy it from and how many policies can be active at one time. And I just don't know the details of all that. So I'm going to throw out a suggestion. You run the numbers and think about it and see if it makes sense and if it's legal and appropriate in your situation. Here's what I'm thinking. In the information you provided to me, you showed a comparison between what it would cost to be enrolled in your employer's health care plan or to be covered by a medical health share. And in the scenario that you laid out, your first year of coverage will be less expensive with your employer's policy. However, in year two, after your wife's pre-existing condition gets phased in with the health share, it would actually be significantly less expensive to go with the health share. So here's what I'm thinking. 
rather than an either-or situation where you choose one plan or the other. What if in the first year, and again, I'm not sure if this is legal, but what if in the first year you did both programs? And what you do since you're enrolled in both programs, file all your claims through your employer's program, and then through your health share, only pay them the monthly contribution. And don't claim any of your wife's pre-existing conditions there. If you do that, I think your monthly payment would only be around $400. I could be wrong on this, but maybe around $400 to the health share. And so while doing both of these programs in the first year would be more expensive, it would be cheaper over the second year and then significantly cheaper over the third year. Because in the second year, you would drop your employer's plan and be fully covered with the health share at a cost of only $6,000, which is the number that you gave me. So just real quickly here, assuming my calculations are accurate, if you did both plans in the first year and then dropped your employer's plan in the second year, your total cost over two years would be about $23,800. That's less than either of the other two options, which would be $26,000 over two years if you stick with your employer's plan, or $28,000 over two years if you just do the health share. So run the numbers that way and see if you come up with a similar analysis. And don't hesitate to contact me directly if you'd like to bounce some ideas off me. Well, hey, Matt, thank you for your question. Everybody here at the TSP community will be pulling for your wife, hoping for the best outcome. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. There's a principle at play here that, that people need to learn from in its total cost. Um, my son's dealing with this right now. I, I got a, a deal I've mentioned before, and this is a much lighter subject, right, than dealing with something so, so dark. So maybe that'll help us turn a corner here. Um, but I got him an incredible deal on a car, $129 a month with, I think it was like $1,500 down, uh, driving a Nissan Ultima for three years. That lease is now coming to an end, and he's dismayed that you just can't go get another one of those because you, you, you really can't. That's, that's not something that you can do all the time. And he's struggling with the concept of, but I put a down payment, they're asking for me for a down payment again, and would I be better off buying the vehicle? And what I've tried to explain to him is, in some instances, in some vehicles, yes. At your price point, which is very low, or at a price point that's very high, in general, you're going to do better with the lease. And it's in that middle ground where generally the lease will lose many times. Not all times, but many times. It also has to do with your driving habits and resale values and things like that. But what I ended up having to try to explain is that if you, if you do the math, you're going to see not only do you have a higher payment, you have a higher overall cost. And you might be able to say, well, I can, I can do the buy with some kind of incentive and put zero down. But you still have to look at the total cost. And then you have to you know, face the reality of your budget. And this is something that we need to be doing in all walks of life. What might be more expensive for you this year could be less expensive for you over two or three years. And if you can do that, now you can't always do it. You can't always absorb it. Sometimes you have to deal with what you can deal with. But if you can deal with that, In many instances, you're ahead. In this case, the tune of five or six thousand dollars for the gentleman that, that, that wrote in to ask John the question, and that's by thinking creatively and out of the box and doing something that initially seems very counterintuitive. Why double pay? Because it costs less. And if you're going to have to go into debt for it, it's less debt that you have to go into as well. If you don't have to go into debt for something, 
it's money straight back into your, your, your bottom line. And either way, that's where it ends up in the end. So good stuff by John. Now i got a question for Gary Collins. Uh, this is a gentleman who basically hears his issue. He's got a girlfriend that likes the taste of red meat, but every time she eats it, she gets sick. And, she's, and until she met him, she has never eaten red meat. And you'll hear Gary kind of hone in on the point that the only red meat they've tried so far is beef, so that might actually have something to do with it as well. Um, this is a thing that I'm hearing more and more about recently, but I, I, I haven't run into this. Gary has quite a bit, so he's got some thoughts on it. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss all things primal, paleo, living off the grid, life simplification, and just making our lives darn better. Now, this question today, I've actually answered this quite a few times over the years, and I have found that it is very common in women to include former girlfriends. So this isn't the first go-around with this one. Now, the, when he asks the question, he says red meat, but he's actually referring to beef because I don't hear him. He didn't talk about any other red meats, you know, venison, lamb, so buffalo, anything. I, all I heard was beef. So I wonder if the problem could be just beef or other red meats. So I would, that's first what I would ask and kind of, if, if I'd have her eat other types of red meat to see if she has this exact same problem. It could be some, some intolerance or allergy to beef. And not only the beef, it could be the way the beef's raised. What it's eating, is it grass fed? Is it just, you know, CAFO meat coming from an, you know, an animal mill? All those could be issues. Remember, what the animal eats is what you eat. So if you have an allergy to something, say soy, corn, well, that's what a lot of cows eat today. You may be actually having an intolerance due to that. And also I have found most women tend to, don't take this the wrong way, women, tend to diet more than men, and they tend to go fad diet to fad diet, and they usually end up eating less meat. I have no, especially in the form of red meat. Remember that that in order for protein to digest and be broke down, it has to be broken down in the stomach with hydrochloric acid, HCL, and pepsin, the digestive enzyme pepsin. So if you do not consume a lot of meat, especially I found this even people who get their protein through vegetable sources, beans, and all that good stuff if they're vegan, vegetarian, that even though they're breaking it, it breaks down differently than meat, and it takes a lot more hydrochloric acid and pepsin to break down animal flesh. So, if she may have had a diet similar to this in the past, she may have issues more with red meat because red meat tends to have more marbling, especially today's cuts if you're getting at the supermarket. So it's going to have more fat. And remember, red meat is more dense. It's more fibrous. It's a fibrous type of animal of uh, muscle. So that red meat tends to be a little hard to digest. Remember, fat is the slowest to digest. Then protein. Uh, then carbohydrates. So carbohydrates digest the quickest, protein second quickest, fat the slowest. So you throw in fat into that, you got the perfect storm, now it's going to digest more slowly. She already has issues with meat, red meat especially, that's what happens. And so you say that also, that when you cook it longer she tends to have a little better luck with it. Well, that makes it a little easier to digest when that's why humans tend to cook their meat. That's where we discovered it. And we've been eating it that way for a long time. It's easier for us to digest because it breaks down some of that fibrous, tough tissue, that muscle tissue. Uh, in order to fix this, 
it, there's so this is a wide open question because there's there is actually a lot that could go into this. But I would first test using smaller amounts of meat. Like actually, first I would try other red meats to see if she has the same issue. That way you can do kind of an elimination diet. If she still has the same issue, what I would do is incorporate the red meat slowly and see, you know, so a little chunk, maybe a bite of your steak, maybe a bite of your hamburger or whatever, and do it that way and see if she can build up, you know, a tolerance or build up more hydrochloric acid, pepsin secretion, because your stomach will not secrete it if it is not needed because it will just eat a hole in itself. And that's where you get GERD, you know, you get digestive issues, uh, you know, ulcers. That's from a whole host of other issues. But if your stomach just produced hydrochloric acid, willy-nilly, well, that's what would happen. So that's why if you don't eat a lot of animal flesh, especially red meat, it's not going to produce as much. Kind of, you know, your body check and balances. So if that doesn't work, you can also purchase hydrochloric acid and pepsin uh, digestive enzymes. I believe they make an HCL pepsin combination. Uh, you'd have to go to your local health food store, but it's there. I've used it in the past, and it does work with some people. hope that answers your question, and I want to thank all you guys for helping uh, buy my book, Going Off the Grid. actually hit number one uh, in a couple categories on Amazon. It was doing really, really well, and uh, became, it was uh, a bestseller. This is a bestseller, so I'm really happy about that. So make sure to continue to do those reviews. It helps me get back up in those rankings and helps our movement because that's what I wrote it for, for all of us and for other people interested in getting into our lifestyle. Thanks again, guys. All right, next up I have a, a question that I kind of asked uh, our law enforcement expert, Dan Oman, to put to the top of his stack, because I'm very interested to hear what he has to say with this. The question is, in general, if you're stopped by a law enforcement officer and they ask to search your vehicle, how do you handle it? Dan, take it away. Hey guys, this is Dan from the Expert Council answering all your questions pertaining to law enforcement matters. Today I got a great one from Jesse. Jesse asked, when pulled over by an officer, should one voluntarily agree to a vehicle search? Is this simply a fishing expedition? And what are the consequences of refusing? Great question, Jesse. In most cases, officers are looking for drugs when they request to do a vehicle search. The vehicle searches are an extremely effective tool for officers who are doing narcotic interdiction. In a way, they are a fishing expedition because officers are often making these requests to do the searches without having any actual knowledge that there is contraband in the vehicle. In other words, they don't have probable cause. An officer who is good at drug interdiction isn't going to request to search every vehicle they stop. Though There are certain things that might trigger an officer to request permission to search a vehicle during a traffic stop. For highway or interstate interdiction, officers are generally on the lookout for out-of-state license plates or driver's license. If there's a cooler in the front passenger seat with food in it, basically the driver is packed in for long-distance travel with minimal stops caffeine tablets or lots of jolt, you know, those monster drinks, basically any type of stimulant to enable longer driving, nervous behavior, that sort of thing. Drug couriers want to make as few stops as possible because when they stop to get gasoline or food or sleep somewhere, that's when they're at risk for losing their precious cargo. So they tend to bring a lot of their own food and stimulants with them, so they're less likely to have to stop to sleep very often. 
officers that are in more of a municipal setting. They're looking at cars that are in high drug trafficking areas, the vehicles that are loitering, or there's an apparent drug transaction going on, or when stopped, the officer recognizes the driver as a known drug dealer. Any of these things might trigger the officer to make a request to search the vehicle. A lot of people actually agree to the requests and allow officers to search their vehicle, even drug couriers, because drug couriers they would rather have an officer search their vehicle than have a canine come sniff. They figure that if they decline and don't let the officer search the vehicle, the officer is going to be calling a canine out to do a sniff, a walk around the vehicle. And the Supreme Court has ruled that a canine doing a walk around of the vehicle and sniffing the exterior of the vehicle does not constitute a search. So there's no Fourth Amendment violation. There's no probable cause needed, with the exception of states like Colorado, where marijuana is now illegal. There are some issues now with the canines doing the sniffs there, but pretty much in every other state, the officers can have a canine come sniff without probable cause. The canines pretty much never miss, so if there are drugs in the vehicle, the canines are going to know. But I digress here. Jesse's probably not asking from the context of a drug courier. But if you get solicited for a search, the officer will generally say something like, We've had a lot of drug trafficking in this area lately. In order to maintain safety for everyone, we've been conducting vehicle searches. Do you have any drugs, knives, guns, grenades, nuclear weapons, etc. in the vehicle? And the grenades and nuclear weapons remark is added for levity and to make the driver feel a little more comfortable given the absurdity of the question. Generally, the motorist will answer no to that question, and then the officer will respond with, well, you don't mind then if I search your vehicle to remove you of all suspicion, right? The best thing for you to do here is respectfully decline the officer access to your vehicle. Surprisingly, a lot of law-abiding citizens actually grant access to law enforcement. They, they let them search the vehicle. And I think that's either because they feel compelled to let the officer search, or it's out of a spirit of cooperation, or because they have the I-have-nothing-to-hide thing going on. And it may very well be true that you have nothing to hide, but not only will you have a cop digging through your car, it will waste a lot of your time. An officer practicing good safety skills will have you exit your vehicle and have you wait at their patrol car with a second officer standing by. Sometimes that means waiting on the second officer to get there for several minutes before the search begins. And then there's the time during the search, which is going to take several more minutes. There is absolutely no upside to giving consent to search your vehicle, and there's no consequence for not consenting to the search. Without a search warrant, it's just that, a request for consent. But then you're probably wondering, well, if I don't give them consent, are they going to write me a, a ticket for whatever they pulled me over for? That's a valid concern, but courts have ruled that requests for searches have to come after the traffic stop has concluded so the driver does not have the impression that they are not free to leave. So the officer generally needs to be giving the driver's license back to the driver, and if there was a citation to be issued, they would have already had to have issued it. And let you know that you're free to go, and then they ask you for the search. That would be the proper way for them to do the stop and then ask for consent to search the vehicle. So if the officer is doing things correctly, chances are he already gave you your license back and issued you a warning or a citation for the initial reason for the stop, so he wouldn't have anything to hold over your head, such as writing you a ticket. So again, do not feel obligated to waive your Fourth Amendment right and let the state invade your privacy by searching your vehicle. I've seen a lot of these types of traffic stops, and the ones where the driver says, no, you can't search my vehicle, the officer has always said, 
okay, thank you, go about your business, and that's the end of the stop. So again, there's no consequence for you declining consent. So I hope that thoroughly answers your question, Jesse. And guys, remember, if you have any questions that you want answered in regards to law enforcement, send them in to Jack, and I'll get them answered for you. All right, great stuff from Dan and uh, excellent advice from someone that knows the drill. Next up, I have a question from Stephen, for Stephen Harris on solar heating integration with existing heat pumps. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris from the Survival Podcast Expert Panel calling in to answer your question today. Today, I got one from Trevor, and uh, I'm going to give you guys all some cautions about this. And I'm going to be direct about it. And Trevor, not bashing you. I'm sure it was the previous house owner that got this thing. But it is a message to all of you to remember that the salesman who is selling you the device doesn't really give a flying fracas about you. Okay? He just wants the sale. That's all it takes. And, you know, and if it doesn't deliver, it's like, he doesn't care. So this is what happens a lot. And so here's the question. Steve, I live in southern Ohio and have a dual heating system composed of a heat pump and a fuel oil furnace. That's actually, you know, that's not a bad idea. You know, two ways to heat your house. That's, you know, that's not bad. I, I, I like that. You know, the thinking is good. The temperature is above freezing for 80% of the winter season, so the heat pump does the majority of the work. Okay, so it's cooling his house in the summertime, and it's heating the majority of his house during the winter time. My heat pump is located on the south face of my house on a concrete patio and against a concrete block wall. It receives full sun when the sun is out. Using the principles from your absolutely incredible, I love it so much I bought 10 copies of it, your book, Sunshine to Dollars. I might have exaggerated a little bit there, but ignore it. Anyways, uh, using your principles from Sunshine to Dollars, are there any low-tech ways to boost the efficiency of my heat pump? I had some ideas like stapling black plastic to plywood and surrounding the area concrete patio block wall with black to capture more heat as the air is pulled in. Or even building a three-foot-high air tunnel where air comes in and has to travel through the hot tunnel before it hits the heat exchange area this would be a lot more work so i wanted to check with you before i attempted it well i can tell you if i look in the red book which is the nrel solar data book uh, which um, i sell and is free online just go look up nrel data book you we can look up and find like cincinnati ohio and in the winter, if you got an off-axis, single-axis solar tracker, uh, not tracker, solar panel for heat at 15 degrees above your longitude, that you're probably receiving a mean average of about 250 BTUs per square foot of your location. Anyways, uh, I wrote them back, and I said, what type of heat pump do you have now? There's air-to-air heat pumps. 
like your central AC. Your central AC is a one-way heat pump. It has the condenser outside, the evaporator, and the furnace. It runs the cycle one way, and it cools your house very good. A heat pump actually, uh, for heating, works in the reverse. And what it does is it takes the temperature of the outside air, let's say 40 degrees, and it pulls the heat out of it. It's not a violation of the second law of thermodynamics. It's something called the Carnot cycle, and it's perfectly legit. Carnot cycle's efficiency is dictated by your delta T, your difference in temperature, though. So it sucks in, like, 40-degree air, and then it uh, heats the refrigerant to 40 degrees, which goes through a compression and expansion cycle, which goes through the furnace and delivers the heat through your furnace, through blowing hot air through the which would then be the condenser, and then goes back out to the evaporator. And so it's going out at like 30-some degrees, and it came in at 40-some degrees, and the end result is 90-degree air coming out of your furnace. Nope, it's not a lightsaber. It's not magic. It is the pure engineering. It does work. But the thing is, there's three types of heat pump systems. There is the air-to-air system like he has, which is positively absolutely the worst system you could possibly get this is an example where the uh, electric company or the salesman really sold the person a bill of goods oh you'll get better ac bills in the summertime and it'll heat your house in the wintertime they don't tell you about the high amount of energy it takes to heat your winter your house in the wintertime now, then there is a ground loop system where you go down four to six feet and you bury like 200 feet of uh, tubing. And what happens is instead of using the air as your heat source or your heat sink, what it does is it pumps heat into the coils underneath the earth to cool your house or it sucks heat out of the ground loop around your house to heat your house. Now, the mean average ground temperature where I am in Michigan is approximately 64 degrees Fahrenheit after you go down four feet below the frost line. It is about 64 degrees Fahrenheit, which means if you're in southern Ohio, it'll be a little bit warmer. If you had a ground loop system, you would be sucking off of 60 degree ground temperature rather than 30 degree or 20 degree or 10 degree air in an effort, effort to heat your house. Even with a ground loop system, heat pump systems can be sketchy. Now, the real way to run a heat pump is to have two wells, one up and one down. And this doesn't work too good in Texas where the water is 800 feet down and you have flow rate issues. But in you know other places, especially like where you have a low water table like the Detroit area of Michigan, uh, you can have a 125-foot well, and you have one up, and you have another one 100 feet or more away from that well. That's the well down. So what you do is, yep. See, if you got a loop in the ground, you're doing, you're conducting heat from earth to the pipe to the refrigerant that goes back to the compressor 
which then goes back through the metal heat exchanger that goes to the air being blown through it to go into your house, which then runs back out to the loop to try to give up its heat to the dirt. So that's, okay, here's the best way. When you have groundwater, and one, that groundwater is coming up at 55, 60, 70, 80 degrees. You're in Arizona, you got 82-degree groundwater, uh, Tucson specifically. So anyways, so now when you're pulling up groundwater, you got liquid-to-metal heat exchange. Okay, and then metal to refrigerant, then refrigerant to metal, and then air to metal to blow into your house. So you, you remember, air is not a heat exchanger. Air, air is an insulator, but it's the only thing you have as a working fluid, as we call it, to heat and cool your house. So we're stuck with dealing with air. But when you do the other two type of types of heat pumps, you have an advantage because you're using the ground temperature. And let me tell you, the well one is the best one there is. I know a guy even north of me in Port Huron, he has a heat pump that he got for his house back in the energy crisis of the 70s or the 80s, and he has a well up and then a drain out. And what happens is in the wintertime, it literally is draining about a gallon a minute out onto his grass, and it makes a little ice rink, and no one cares, and it just melts in the springtime, and that's the end of it. So he's got one well up and no well down. Uh, if you live next to a great lake, a big lake, a sizable pond, and although bigger than Jack's Pond, uh, then you can easily take advantage of that water, especially when it comes to cooling your house in the summertime. Now, you should only really, really, really consider a heat pump for your house if you're in the northern areas, only if you are using groundwater. You should not even try to go with the ground lube. You just aren't going to get your money out of it. If you want the simplest installation, you're better off with going with a standard AC system and electric baseboard heat. It's three times less efficient than the heat pump, but it's so inexpensive and so simple. And plus, it's like I can heat the room I'm in. If I'm not in the bedrooms during the daytime, the timer can turn off the temperature and lower it for the other bedroom. So you can, like, really control the heat around your house and thus make it more efficient. It does work. But heat pumps really only work good once you start getting south of Ohio. Well, I know he's in southern Ohio, but not picking it on you, Trevor. But when you get south, Atlanta, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, Texas, um, California, good, you know, temperate climate like that, it, heat pumps really work good. And then, God, you still don't want the air-to-air one. You're better off. So, I mean, they can charge $30,000 for some of these heat pumps. Oh, you'll get your money back in 20 years, I guarantee it. Yeah, so says the salesman who gets the big fat commission check. Uh, no. Um, you're better off, you know, let's say if I was in San Diego, California, and I had a manufactured home, I would get a small central AC system. One, I would foam my roof underneath the shingles, okay? First thing I would do is foam my roof, foam the walls, and then, you know, have them build the house. First thing you do to cool your house is not let the heat get in. 
And then I would uh, have regular AC system, and I would have baseboard electric heat. And that is the short story. So ground loop if you have to. Uh, well water is the best. Uh, consider a standard AC refrigeration system, AC system, which could be as cheap as $2,000, depending on the size of your house, and electric baseboard heat. Uh, if you're in the south and like I only need heat for you know one and a half months and then with electric heat I can really control my house. The whole house doesn't have to be heated. Just the living room and the kitchen and you know that area like that during the day and then you switch it over and you heat the bedroom at night, you let the living room get cool. You can be smart about it, people. This is Stephen Harris with the expert council. Hope you enjoyed this little thing. If you got more questions on heat pumps, just email me. I will take care of you personally with all your specifics. Tell me where you are, what you're doing, what you're trying to do, what your electric rate is and everything, and I'll work it out for you. Get all my stuff I did with Jack at Stephen1234.com. You, you just got to love Stephen Harris, man. You really do. He's just He's one of the most animated human beings I know. Anyway, uh, next up, I have a question for uh, Nick Ferguson, and this question is on rabbit cages. Nick, take it away. Hey, everyone. Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com, and I have a question from JR, and he asks if I can give him the ins and outs of building a rabbit hutch for two does, one buck, and a grow-out pen. Well, I think that's a great question, but before I get into my answer, I have a quick thing I wanted to throw out to the listeners just in case someone was in the market. I live in north-central Louisiana, and I have a three-quarter Irish Dexter, one-quarter Jersey proven sire bull that I want to trade. I'm not looking to sell him necessarily, but I'll take cash. Um, he is naturally pulled and sweet as can be. Email me if you're interested in trading for him. Nick at homegrownliberty.com. I made a post about him with pictures in my Homegrown Liberty group on Facebook. So if you're interested in that, shoot me an email or check it out on the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group. All right, cows aside, on to rabbits. So when talking about rabbit cages, you normally describe them by the number of holes or cage sections. Each hole houses a single rabbit or a doe with kits. So, for instance, you might have a rabbit cage that's 12 feet long that's divided into four sections called holes. And I like to make my cages... No larger than 24 inches from front to back because you need to be able to reach in and grab the rabbit. And that's hard to do if the doorway is, you know, 8 inches by 8 inches square and it's 36 inches to the back of the cage. You can't just reach in that far unless you're (laughs) Andre the Giant. So my holes, the cages, are generally sized, each hole is sized 36 inches wide and 24 inches deep, 18 inches tall, which gives... About six, which gives exactly six square feet per rabbit. So each hole is sized like that, but the overall cage dimensions will have added width. So for instance, a two hole cage would be 72 inches wide. A four hole cage would be 144 inches wide or 12 feet. So if you went with a five hole cage like I do, that would give you one area for a buck, two, holes for does and two holes for grow outs for the bunnies and if you did that you'd have plenty of room for a breeding trio and extra room for the bunnies to grow out 
Now I'll be adding plans for my rabbit cages that I designed uh, to my Patreon feed for the supporters there, and my plans are for essentially a five-hole cage that comprises four holes that are 24 inches by 36 inches, and there's two of them on each side. So if you're imagining it from the top down and it's like a, a piece of notebook paper, there's two holes on each side, and then tacked on to the very end is a 48-inch wide by 18-inch deep by 18 inches tall cage section. So that leaves one – that leaves door openings on three sides and one side that's 48 inches wide does not have any doors on it. So you can bump that up against a shed wall or something like that and still have access to five cages in a, I think it's what, seven and a half feet long by four foot wide footprint, which is pretty nice. So that gives you space to put the buck in, let's say the 18 inch by 48 inch and cage, one doe on each side, and then you can keep the other two back holes for the bunnies. And I think that would make for a great workflow. It'd keep the does acquainted with the buck through the cage wire. Now, I will tell you this. I once made an eight-hole cage with the materials I ordered from Amazon. I cut the wire with little side-cutting dikes or pliers, if whatever you call them. I used J-clamps to join the wire pieces. The cage turned out great, but my fingertips were raw and bleeding by the end of it. And the sheer hours of my life... I felt like I wasted, made it one of the experiences in my life where I looked back at what I just created, added up the cost, added $20 an hour for my time invested, and found it was an extremely expensive rabbit cage made with uh, subpar materials at best. So speaking of materials, I'd suggest that you go with one half inch by one inch mesh for the floors. I like to use baby saver wire for the sides. Now, that's going to be kind of hard for you to find on some place like Amazon. But basically, the bottom four inches or so of the wire is spaced at one-half inch by one inch. And then the rest of the wire above the baby saver portion is one inch by two inches. And that saves on weight and cost while making sure the bottom portion is small enough that the babies can't crawl out the sides. Now, if you can't buy baby saver wire, then you just cut four-inch strips of the same kind of mesh that you use for the floors and attach it to the inside of your cages so that they can't crawl out the sides. And I encourage you to build the cage exclusively out of wire. Rabbits will chew the wood to bits, and the treated wood will poison them if you use treated wood. If you use untreated, they have really caustic urine, and it'll rot really fast. And you don't want to have your cage fall apart and break in some windstorm because you didn't realize it was rotting so quick. So my vote is all metal cages, and you can use quarter-inch hardware cloth installed at a steep angle underneath the cage, and this will allow you to direct the droppings to a collection point where you can dry and preserve the rabbit manure for later use or make it easier to harvest and utilize. And what that looks like is you just attach it probably from one side if you have all of your holes um, open on one side, then you can attach it on the front side and then drape it down and away from where you'll be walking so that it doesn't make a mess where you're going to stand. And if you use that quarter-inch hardware cloth, it'll allow the droppings to get caught and directed away from the underside of the cage and dumped into a container or something you know, like a trough while it allows the urine to fall through. Now, I'll say this, though. I've seen people do that. 
and it works. But using the diverting screen is disgusting. Hair falls through from the rabbits, and it gets caught. And you end up with rabbit hair soaked in urine, dangling down from the hardware cloth. It stinks. It's unsightly. It's just nasty. So I don't like those unless you really need to be able to divert the manure and harvest it. I will probably end up doing that with one of my rabbit cages in the future, just so that I can use it, the rabbit manure, for other purposes like feeding to other insects.、Um, Or you can build an earthworm bin that'll fit underneath the rabbit cage to self-harvest the refuse from the rabbits. No smell. The worms make the manure into earthworm castings, which, in my opinion, is better than straight rabbit manure. And I'll tell you what I tell most people: if you're short on funds, then try and source a rabbit cage from Craigslist or somewhere online and save money that way. Just sanitize it with something that'll kill the bacteria on the cage material. A one-to-nine ratio of bleach to water will sanitize it. Don't use straight bleach. Because it'll oxidize a lot of the zinc from the cage wire, and it'll rust way faster. And that's what I'd do if I was starting out, and I wasn't sure if I would like keeping rabbits. That way, you've got the minimal dollars invested in the endeavor. But if you can afford it and you want to make a new cage, then get some good quality material from a cage making source. You want galvanized after welding material if you can get it. It's kind of hard to find, and it is more expensive. But the regular galvanized before weld. Material is just fine. I do not like the vinyl or PVC coated cage material. I find that the rabbits will just chew it up anyway. So why bother spending the extra money for the coated wire when they just chew it off? I think the coated stuff ends up allowing the urine to just kind of sit against the wire longer and make it rust quicker. So I just go with the regular galvanized after welding wire if you can get it. Otherwise, just the regular galvanized before weld. That leaves you with one final option. If you're positive you're going to keep rabbits for the long haul, you know you're going to do this because it just makes a lot of sense. You've crunched the numbers and you don't mind harvesting them and taking care of them. Then I would say get a professionally made cage. Your fingers will thank you. I always prefer to buy once, cry once when it comes to a daily use tool or item. So with that said, you can call Steve Larkin and get a cage designed by me straight from Steve Larkin himself. I worked on. Several different cage designs. I've kept rabbits for several years. I've gone through probably 12 different iterations of what makes a cage work for me, and I designed this cage myself. I went to Steve. We sat down. We went over it. He said he can do it, and I actually worked with him and built one. I checked out his shop. He does great work. You can send him a text message. To two one four five three six seven five two five, or his email is travelingcageman at gmail dot com, and that's travelingcageman with one L in traveling. And if you're one of my Patreon supporters at five dollars and up, you can get a ten percent discount using the discount code I have for you guys on my Patreon feed at patreon dot com forward slash homegrown liberty dot com. Just search for discount code. All right. That does it for this answer. Join up on the Patreon group to see videos coming hopefully next month on my rabbit cages and automated watering system. And if you are interested in our cow named Burger, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. Yeah, guys, it's a great, great stuff from Nick. We had a really great lineup this week. I'm batting cleanup today, and、uh, my question is on butchering deer. Comes from Jared, and Jared has this to say: Do you have any suggestions for improving processing butchering skills for deer? 
For example, other animals with longer open seasons or larger beef or pork uh, parts, cuts, I may purchase and process to finished products at home. Episode 1637 on bow hunting, Deer Down Now What? Helped me get through my first deer, but I know I could have done a better job and would like some suggestions on how to practice before I harvest my next deer. Um, I mean, on, on some levels, Jared, it's, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Because you, you don't have a deer. To, you know, like, you, I, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying. Like, if, if you ask me to, to show you how to process a quail or a chicken, like, I'm pretty good at it because I've done it a lot. And you do it, when you do it, you generally do it in, in enough frequency that in the same day you're, you start, you're better by the end of that day until you reach a level of, you know, sufficiency about as good as you're going to get, right? But, you know, we shoot at deer and we go through all this crap to butcher it and we don't do it again for another year. So we don't get the muscle memory. We don't get to the point where we become kind of a master of it. So there's, there's a few things that you can do. We'll save, you know, using cuts of meat for, for, for maybe more toward the end. If one of the first things I would say is cutting up a rabbit or a squirrel or a pig is exactly the same as cutting up a deer, assuming that you cut it up on some levels. And I don't mean that you're going to go in there and take your, your squirrel and cut back straps out of it like you might with a deer. But overall, like skinning it, And if you're gonna you're gonna quarter it out into pieces for cooking, it's it's all the same. And, and I think I'm a better deer butcher because I skinned so many daggone squirrels in my life. And I was a guy that didn't just cook whole squirrels. I like to make squirrel stew and stuff like that. I even used to deep. I won't do it now. I used to deep bone squirrels. If you want to make squirrel stew, quarter it up, leave it on the bones, and eat it off the bones. It's so much easier. Um, so it, just getting. More experience processing any four-legged quadruped, right? I mean, that, that's going to help a little bit right there. Another option would be, you know, spend some money and go hunt somewhere where it's like a guided hunt type situation and try to do it at a place where it's affordable and kind of like a, uh, an, every, an, you know, an every guy's hunt. Um, I've learned a lot because uh, I'm really good at butchering a deer, but I have my way. And I've learned a lot of other ways of doing things by being in hunting camps in situations like where you don't even know anybody. And, and the reason that is is because you see so many animals process so quickly. So that would be another thing that you could do. Another thing you could do, if it's legal where you're at or if you can get away with it, you know, there's these this time of year, there's deer running all over the place, and occasionally they run into these great big metal things called cars and trucks, and bam, deer down on the side of the road. Um, it's like a free deer. You don't want to mess it up, right? But you, you're not as concerned with doing it perfectly, and you're probably going to have some meat damage and stuff you're going to have to throw away with that. But that's free meat, and you're getting more hands-on experience with it. But, I mean, the good news is, assuming that you get your deer every year, you will get better at it. It's, it's not a difficult process, really. It's actually, I don't understand. I, I, I remember, you know, getting a, a butcher to do your deer for you used to be like 30 bucks. And, and now I hear people, you know, taking a deer and getting a deer butchered for like 100, 150 freaking dollars. I, I, I don't understand. Because there's nothing that complicated. And frankly, there's not that much meat on a deer. I, I, when I raise these turkeys in my backyard, I feel like I get almost as much meat off a dadgone full-grown turkey as I do off of a deer. It's not quite there, but it's 
it's not that far off. Uh, you know, a 120-pound deer is going to give you 30 to 40 pounds of meat. And, and if, if you're paying $150 to have somebody do that, you're paying over $3 a pound for your own meat. That just doesn't make sense to me. So I, I definitely think you should, you know, continue to d develop your skill set with this. About the best analog to a deer is honestly a goat. Um, that's about the, the, the animal that's closest in size. And it's, your smaller pigs are as well. You know, your, your, your heritage hogs that people butcher around 150 to 170 pounds. So another option might be, you know, go find someone locally that sells meat animals and process the animal yourself. And if you can process a goat, you can process a deer. And if you can process a deer, you can process a goat. And doing it yourself will give you more of the animal to work with. You'll end up with a hide that you can tan. You end up with bones that you can make stock from. You end up with your organs. I'll tell you that there's a big trend going on in deer hunters right now and in other animals too. And it's very tempting to do. I generally don't do it myself, but it's called peeling. And, and, and when you peel an animal, you skin it. And you take all the meat off. You usually take the legs off, the, the front and the back legs. If you're careful, you can do it without opening the belly cavity. You can cut all the breast meat off of the ribs on the outside of the ribs. Um, and you take your back straps out and, you know, you end up with basically the whole carcass uh, looking like a, a almost skeleton. And then you just discard that after deal with the entrails. And some of you are going, but what about the tenderloins? If you, if you go right behind the last two floating ribs, you can cut a hole in there and you can reach in with your knife and, and kind of cut the ends and just pull them out. So you can even get your tenderloins out without ever actually getting into the internal organs and all. I find this to be something I don't want to do personally. Um, I always take the heart and the liver off of deer. If you're going to make sausage, liver is a great ingredient for sausage. It's the only real thing that I want out of there other than the heart. But I've thought, you know, there, there, there is other awful there, and, and, and maybe some of that stuff would make pretty good sausage too, uh, like maybe the kidneys or something like that. I've just never taken anything with the heart and liver. But I don't want to give that up. That's a, when you look at a liver, it's a pretty substantial uh, amount of volume. And while I do not like the taste of liver by itself, and I've tried it every, I've tried it fresh, I've tried it soaked in milk, I've tried, you name it, whatever you want to do to it, it, I don't like it. About the closest I've got to liking liver is a little livers out of quail. If you roll those in flour and fry them crisp, they're, they're okay. And, uh, rabbit liver. Rabbit liver is like the only liver I really like. It's, uh, It, 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 it's kind of an amazing thing, but every other, but in sausage. And if you have a liver and that weighs four or five pounds, uh, that's four or five pounds of sausage meat. So I encourage you to continue with actually gutting the animal, at least until you decide that you don't want to. And again, now that we've got it, we can take, you know, a sawzall and cut the rib cages off and we can cut that in half. And that's either treats for the dogs or we roast that. We make stock with it. There's, There's so much that's lost in this peeling process. And when you take it to a butcher, that's all, they don't do that shit. They just don't do it. So I, you know, I encourage you to continue that way. Buying like larger cuts of meat, like you can go to Costco and whatever, it might help a little bit, but generally, you know, it's not something you're going to be deboning or whatever. So I, I don't know that it would be as helpful. I think your best bet, if you want to buy something to learn to process better, is going to be goat or small hog and self-process it, uh, and, and that'll help you. The other thing, reach out to all of your friends that hunt 
and say, if you shoot a deer, call me and I'll come help you. Because no one's like, I don't want any help. You know, I mean, people all, like, it's not the most, for a lot of people, it's not a real fun thing to do. Um, but you know, if you just tell people, I want to learn and I'll come over at, in moment's notice if, if I'm available and, and I'd like to help and I'd like to know more. Um, you know, so that's, that's another option. Um, and again, if, if your local laws allow for some way to do it, collection off a of highway, I, the fact that it's illegal in Texas, I just, It's mind-numbingly stupid to me. Like people will just be running deer over left and right. No, they won't. Because in the states where it's legal, no, they don't. All right, it's legal in Pennsylvania. You got to call the game warden. But no, I have never seen anybody driving down the road hauling ass after a deer with their truck. It just, you know, you're going to stop and 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 six to seven out of ten times, you're not going to pick the animal up. It's it's not a good way to collect venison. But, you know, you can go out on any given night or any given morning and maybe see six or seven deer, and odds are one of them will be worth picking up. And so that's, that's a good process, too. If there's, you know, opportunity to, uh, to take animals like raccoon, I actually think if you learn to take the little kernels out, raccoons are fine eating animals well. They're a little bit bigger. They're not nowhere as big as a deer, but the process of quartering up, cutting up a raccoon is very, very similar to a deer. That's another option. Um, I will tell you this. For all you deer hunters, if you're buying store-bought beef, the, the smartest thing you can do is get a Costco membership or Sam's Club if you don't have Costco around. I prefer Costco. Um, and they, for your ribeyes, you can buy a whole ribeye. Now, it's expensive, but it's less per pound. And when you take that thing out of the, the wrap and slice it into steaks, which is what most people would do with it, um, there's a huge fat cap on it. And you can take a good sharp knife and, and cut off a bit of that fat cap, and you have plenty on your steak. And you take and cut that fat up and put it in a bag and throw it in your freezer. And you do that a couple times a year, and when it comes time to make that deer sausage, instead of going out and buying cheap pork or something, you grind that beef fat into it. And how do we grind our fat? How do we grind everything? We halfway freeze it. We freeze it until it's like a popsicle. But definitely fat. If you try to grind fat without freezing it, you will get goo. And you don't want goo. You want ground fat into the meat. So that would be a little tip I'd give you there. But, you know, reach out to your friends, offer to help. Look around, see if you can find yourself a meat goat or two. Goat meat is fantastic. And uh, that'll give you more confidence in it. And, you'll, you know, you'll learn things like it's different to process a doe than it is a buck. It's not a lot different, but it's some, a few different things you have to deal with down there with, with, with Larry the Cable Guy who would call the Ghiblies, right? <laughs> anyway... With that, we've got uh, the, the show wrapped up today. I want to remind you guys that you can help support the show, and the way that you can do that is by doing what? Your online shopping where? Uh, of course, you're chanting T-SPAZ, T-SPAZ, T-SPAZ.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That's where you go when you're going to shop online. You buy the stuff you're going to buy anyway, and guess what? You help old Jack out, and you help the show that you love, and this is the time of year you're probably doing a lot more shopping. So please do it through T-SPAS because it won't cost you anything. And while you're there, you can check out my reviews. I've got everything category sortable now, so you can see all the stuff that I've reviewed and new reviews as they come out. Today I've got a great gift for the man. Now, I know women grill, and I know guys like essential oils, but I kind of did something that was more geared toward a gift for the ladies yesterday, so I'm going to give some for the man today. If your husband has a Weber kettle grill and you get this, if he doesn't already have one, so make sure he doesn't already have it, he will be a happy husband. 
It is the 8835 hinged cooking grate for your grill. It's a replacement of the part that the food goes on. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is, especially if he's a grill enthusiast. And if you own a Weber kettle, you're probably a grill enthusiast because only enthusiasts choose to own Weber kettles. All right, so what's nice about this grate? It's stainless steel like the one that comes with it weighs twice as much. It's much more heavy duty. It's much better about being a thermal mass for your heat, so it cooks better. The two ends hinge up so that we can go down and add charcoal on either side. We can create our hot zones and stuff like that. But in the middle, there's a circle. And that circle comes out, and it creates all types of opportunity for cool cooking. You can check out my review to learn more, but you can, you know, you can do a beer can chicken because it can sit down in the grill, and we can still cook things out around the ring would be just one example. We can put a vortex in it. I have a link to a vortex. If you don't want to buy this grate for your husband, ladies, take a look at the vortex. Vortexes are cool. I won't tell you about that today. There's a link in the review about it. Anyway, I bought it, you know, when I was looking for someone to do this, this is what I broke it down to. Cost. I didn't want something that costs more than the grill itself. There's some cast iron ones out there that cost two-thirds the price of an entire new grill. It doesn't make any sense to me. Material quality. Again, I thought this was just basically uh, the existing grate with a hole in it, but when I looked at the weight alone, it weighs 8.2 pounds versus 4.5. Heavier material equals more thermal mass. Flexibility. I wanted a grate that had a center panel you could remove. This had that, but it also retained the side panel hinges, so you could use it with a hot zone center or on both sides or on one side. You can also cook something like beer can chicken uh, and close the lid. You can run that vortex I was talking about with it, and you could do potatoes underneath a low and slow pork shoulder. There's so much you could do. The flexibility is almost unending, and there's a whole bunch of accessories that go with it. You want cast iron for searing? They make a centerpiece out of cast iron. You can add to it later. And you can get that cast iron sear without spending two-thirds the price of a new grill just for the grill top because you're only buying a piece that you need. They have what's called a plancha, which is like a griddle for your for your uh, your grill, which lets you do anything you'd be able to do in the house on the stovetop. Uh, pizza stone, a wok, and Weber seems committed to expanding these options. So check it out against the Weber 8835 hinged cooking grate. Uh, it's 35 bucks, and it's cool. And you're going, I would like to get that from my old man, but he, he doesn't have a Weber Hey, you know what? Get him a Weber kettle grill. Weber, Weber premium kettle grill is 150 bucks. He can get this himself if you do that for him. It's, that's an awful nice gift. Anyway, as always, you want to help the show? Do your online shopping where? tspaz.com. And that brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is Cape of Our Hero by Volbeat. I have never heard of this song until today, and I have never heard of Volbeat. Apparently, they're out of Europe somewhere. Uh, but they got a great sound, kind of that guttural sound like uh, the, the, the band we had yesterday. Um, the song's very interesting, though. The, the song comes from the standpoint of the, the, the guy that wrote it, the vocalist, looking up to his father and seeing his father as his hero, and then one day he lost his father. His father died. And, you know, your hero, does, the, the real superhero doesn't die. So it was the death of the concept of a hero. And then the desire to still live up and be that hero. It, it, it's a really, really interesting song. It's not very long. Let me give you the lyrics. All of the perfection, nothing will and can, ha and can be made. The old skin has to be shed before the new one sees the day. Opportunities to find the deeper powers in ourselves. Come when life is breathing and see more than what it is. Go blindly, completely. 
You tell me how I can fly away, and believe all the angels are coming. You bring me down, then I will fly again, and believe that all the angels are coming. The kingdom of the fathers and the heroes, where are you? I'm talking to you every night, more than I should do. What awaits, and when will be the day? When I can wear the cape, I'm lying on the ground, as always, staring into the air. Go blindly, completely. The stars are long gone, but we can still see their glow long after they've skidded off into oblivion. You can look to that star and still see it shining, and if it's a hundred million light years away, it could have been gone for 99 million light years, and it will still shine here for another million years. Such are our heroes. Even when they fall in front of us, we often still see them as they were, and I think that's good. On the other hand, I would say be very, very careful with making people into heroes. Human beings are flawed beings. That's one of the things that actually makes us great. I think it would suck if we were all perfect. I think it's what makes life interesting that we're not perfect. But that does mean if you make someone into your hero, sooner or later they will probably let you down. I prefer to look to people and see them as mentors, not heroes. That means mentors can fall and we can still learn from them. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.